Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Revelation, chapter 6, and the first two verses. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts, saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And our subject this evening is the four horsemen. Well, we return to our studies in the book of Revelation. And uh, before Christmas and New Year, we managed to get to the end of chapter 5. And uh, fully out of the first cycle of the book of Revelation. Remember, there are seven cycles in this book of Revelation. This is how we are interpreting the book. And it's the right way to interpret it. Seven cycles, seven views of the gospel age. And the first view was, of course, the view of the church in the gospel age. How will the church be? There will be no perfect church in the gospel age, that's for sure. But there will be commendable things about the church. There will be uh, things that will come under the condemnation of God and will lead to some churches losing their Uh, spiritual vigor and their energy and their light. And the Lord will take away the lampstand of some of those churches that fall into worldliness and error. But some churches uh, will uh, be blessed and uh, will receive the commendation of the Lord. But uh, remember that he always gave that promise at the end of each letter uh, or exhortation to the seven churches that the church will be... uh, Uh, gloriously blessed in that eternal age. There is that eternal inheritance. Yes, there are faults in the church, in the gospel age, while we are on earth, but in eternity it will not be so. Those who truly trust in the Lord will be victorious. And, uh, well, in chapters 4 and 5, we uh, see the uh, redeemed, Uh, around the throne of God, along with uh, the cherubim and so on. And we saw that uh, great sight of Christ, the lamb that was slain, who is nevertheless victorious, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And uh, it is he alone who is worthy to take the scroll from God. Remember, the scroll from uh, God the Father sat upon the throne Only the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy to take that book and to open it. And what was that book? Well, that book is the glorious will of God in the gospel age. That's what it is. The plan for the Lord's people, the plan for the church, the plan for the world. A scroll that will ensure that all things work out together for the good of his people. And uh, only the Lord Jesus Christ is found worthy to take that book and uh, to realize the great and glorious will of God, to fulfill 
that will of God in the gospel age. So that's uh, really where we left off. But today, or this evening rather, I should say, we're going to uh, have a, a closer look at what the will of God actually is in the gospel age. And there will be joyous things to behold. There will be difficult things to behold, most certainly this evening. But uh, these things uh, will uh, certainly be a help to us and bless us and help us certainly to understand the world in which we live in the modern time. But this evening we're going to focus on uh, difficult things, by and large, that will be evident in the gospel age, and they are represented by the four horsemen. Now these four horsemen that we're going to read of, they're sent forth by the opening of the first seal. Let's read uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 6. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts, saying, Come and see. The first seal is opened. Remember the book in the right hand of the Father had seven seals. And seals, just to remind you, were put in place to prevent a scroll being opened by somebody for whom it was not intended. The scrolls were there, or the seals were there rather, so that only the one who was meant to open it could actually open it. And so uh, uh, it was sealed to everybody else. Only Christ is worthy, as I've already mentioned, to open the book. And he will open the seven seals as we go through this cycle. But the first seal, well, uh, he opens and uh, there is the noise of thunder and one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Now, just before we uh, look at the first horse and uh, the first horseman, we have to uh, just uh, uh, make it very clear what these uh, actually represent, at least in part. And, uh, well, the opening of the seals and the horsemen that come through, as uh, S.L. Morris writes in his commentary, The Drama of Christianity, the opening of the seals is a revelation of the agencies employed for fulfilling the purpose of God in the development of the kingdom of God. So each time a seal is opened, it is going to reveal something that the Lord will use to fulfill his purposes for the development of the kingdom of God. So we need to have that in mind. And so the first seal reveals the four horsemen, and they are going to fulfill the purpose of God. One of the four beasts says, come and see. Well, we know what the four beasts are. They are the cherubim or living creatures. They say, come and see. And not only is that an invitation to John to come and to see and to behold what will come to pass, but it's actually an invitation to the uh, to the horsemen themselves, come out, go forth. You must go out into the world. Really, these are instructions to the riders of these horses. So let's look at the first horse. Uh, verse 2, And I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. The first horse, 
who is invited to come. It's a white horse. The color white, of course, is symbolic for purity. We know that. That's obvious. But it's also symbolic of victory. This is a victorious horse and rider. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. A great conqueror is uh, depicted here. Now it is often interpreted that the rider of this horse represents the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that would be for obvious reasons. The conqueror, the crown, suggesting that he is a king. And uh, well, that is perfectly valid. We can see Christ here. But other commentators suggest that it is not entirely accurate to see it as the Lord Jesus Christ himself, but rather to see it as his gospel, to see this as something rather than some body. Now, of course, it's impossible to separate Christ from the gospel. Christ is the gospel, and the gospel is Christ. So you can, if you want to, see Christ here in this verse. But the problem with seeing Christ here, a definite person on this horse, well, uh, that uh, leads you to uh, speculate on a definite identity for all the other uh, horses and horsemen and so on to give them identities too. And so uh, I think in this context, it's best to see the first horse really as symbolic as the gospel. This is the gospel message. A white horse, a conqueror. So pure, the gospel message, of course. The gospel, the word of God, is the only thing that is pure in this world. It is a white horse, and it is victorious. The gospel is, uh, uh, well, it is an unstoppable force. Throughout the gospel age, accompanied by the Holy Spirit of God, entering into every nation of the world, having a tremendous impact on so many nations, souls being saved, lives being changed, the unbelief of so many being conquered. This is an adequate and a fitting description of the gospel. And while you think of the impact you could speak at length about the influence that the gospel has had upon governments, biblical principles and gospel principles, finding their ways into laws and uh, enshrining themselves into uh, methods of governing. And then you've got the influence that the gospel has on the world, on culture, on literature, on language. This is uh, a conquering horse. And well, this is uh, something that cannot really be measured. The gospel is victorious. And it uh, follows that it is only those who trust in the gospel who are victorious in the gospel age. Only those who believe in the gospel will emerge victorious. Nobody else will. Nobody else will succeed. Nobody else will claim a crown at the end of the gospel age. It's only those who trust in the gospel. Only the gospel is victorious or leads to victory. So this is how we view the first horseman, the horse and his rider. 
a white horse, a crown, going forth to conquer. This is the glorious gospel, but we can, if we want to, see Christ himself in this uh, verse. So that's the first horse that comes forth. But then the second is very different. Verse 3, And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Well, this, very simply, what does this represent? This horse represents war. The second horse represents war. And well, the horse and horse power in the scriptures in the Old Testament represented war uh, very often, but this particularly and specifically so. This horse is red. Well, that uh, speaks to us of how this horse is, uh, it's blood-stained, if you like. And it has a great sword, a sword that is used for slaughter, to kill. And uh, we read of how this horse will take peace from the earth. Well, this is, uh, of course, the obvious uh, effect of war, the removal of peace and almost all of human history, well, you can define it as a tale of conflict and war and strife and a lack of peace. All of human history has been cursed with this great scourge, and uh, uh, every tribe, tongue, and nation has succumbed to war throughout their history. And so this has been sent from God the second horse, the second horse and his rider, the horse of war. And, uh, well, this is uh, so very tragic. There are others, other commentators, who take a slightly different uh, view of this verse. Uh, William Hendrickson, for example, uh, he uh, takes the view that this is not speaking generally of war, but of persecution of the saints. And uh, he points out that, uh, well, first comes the gospel, the uh, white horse, and then secondly, always after the gospel, there is persecution for the Lord's people. And so he takes the, uh, the second uh, horse to speak of persecution specifically for the Lord's people. Well, of course, the Lord's people are persecuted, but uh, I don't think there's enough in this verse to say that it's uh, only them who are in view here. This, uh, and most of the commentators take the view that this is war in its general state and application. But, well, we have to pause here and just start thinking of the implications of what we are seeing. The red horse represents war, which is a terrible thing. And uh, the next two horsemen, as we shall see, will also represent terrible things. But we know, as I've just mentioned, that this is the will of God. This is what God has decreed. And why? Why has God decreed this? This is, after all, the book that the Lamb of God is opening, seal by seal. This is from heaven. 
And so the things that we ask ourselves, why? Why war? How does war fulfill the purpose of God? How does uh, war lead to the development of the kingdom of God? Well, one of the things we can point to, we can uh, look back to the Old Testament. I won't turn to any passage, but this is something Hendrickson refers to. He points out how in the Old Testament, the Babylonians, for example, who waged war on the Israelites, who were they sent by? They were sent by God. God sent the Babylonians to the Israelites. Why? To sanctify his people, to discipline his people so that they would turn again to God. They would turn away from their idols. They would fall in repentance and seek the living God. War was sent by God himself. And not just the Babylonians, it was the same with the Assyrians and the Persians. They were sent so that the people would remember God. And of course we know that war would scatter people, would scatter the Israelites, but the Lord would always bring a remnant back, a remnant who were faithful. And so this is a picture of the Lord purifying his church. So we begin to get an idea of how war is actually fulfilling the purposes of God. And well, you know, it's common in times of war that people are actually saved. One of uh, my favorite books is a book called War and Grace by Don Stevens. And uh, in that uh, book, there are many accounts of how individuals were turned to the Lord in times of war. And if those times of war had never come, they would never have turned to the Lord. But they were saved because war had come. And the great tumult of war and the destabilizing of all things that they trusted in, it brought them to God. War can carry out the purposes of God. And of course you read how even whole nations turned to the Lord in prayer, in times of war. And war has saved the world from wicked regimes. Some people say that uh, the, the Second World War uh, particularly saved Christian civilization. If the Nazis had won, well then Christianity would soon have gone. All of its influence would have gone. But war actually saved and preserved the gospel witness in so many places. So we have to take this view. This has come from God and it is all being played out for the furtherance of God's kingdom. The second horseman, the horse that was red, it seems such a terrible thing. War on earth, but even these things are under the hand of God, the sovereign hand of God. And we have to keep this very much in mind in our lives generally and, uh, well, even as we go through this book. So the first two seals and uh, the first uh, two horses have uh, emerged. But what about the third? And, uh, well, this is uh, more interesting and slightly more complicated when we read it. Verse 5, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts 
say a measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Well, what on earth is this communicating to us? These words, they don't mean very much to us as modern readers. But what this is presenting is economic injustice. Economic injustice. Or to put it another way, the great contrast between the rich and the poor, the difference between scarcity and plenty. The, uh, the scales and uh, the wheat and the barley, all these things, uh, they are symbolic of economic hardship. When uh, bread has to be weighed out, has to be distributed by weight, that means that there was a time of economic hardship. In times of prosperity, you don't have to weigh out bread to give it to people. That's only when times are hard. So this is symbolic of uh, a lack, economic difficulty and uh, hardship. And then you have those words in verse 6. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. Well, again, this doesn't make much sense. But essentially, what this is saying is that uh, a denarius or a penny, a day's wages, would only buy a day's worth of bread. So that which you earned in a day would all be gone in uh, gathering all your basic necessities. And uh, really what this is saying is that poverty sticks. You can't get out of poverty. Everything that you earn, every thing that you uh, uh, take from your uh, from your vocation well it's spent on the basics of uh, living on the necessities of living and uh, this is a permanent feature of the world of life you cannot overcome it there will always be the poor and yet there will always be the rich a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny those uh, uh, that symbolize those who are poor. But then there are the rich who are referred to. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. The oil and the wine, they are symbols of luxury and plenty and indulgence. They will remain. So there will always be this great disparity. This is the way it will always be in society. There will always be the very rich there will always be the very poor. You cannot change that. This is how it will be. And because we cannot change that, well, then there will always be uh, the uh, social problems that come from that. There will always be the social incohesion and the uh, tension between the classes. This is uh, how it will be. It cannot be solved. And so many people have tried to solve it. Political systems and ideologies, communism, for example, that was meant to be the great scheme to eradicate all inequality. That's the, uh, the driving force behind that ideology. Let's just keep people on the same level. It didn't work. Even in that communist system, there was still the very poor, the majority, and then the very rich, the elite, 
You cannot eradicate it from society. Why not? Well, because this is what God has ordained. You cannot make it disappear. But of course, well, you contrast this with the gospel. In the gospel message, and I say it many times, we are all equal. That's the only true equality. Before we come to Christ, we're all equal. We're all sinners in the sight of God. That's perfect equality. Every single one of us, no matter what we earn, no matter what we own, we are all sinners in the sight of God. But then when we come to Christ, when we are saved, we're still all equal. Now we're all sinners saved by grace, every single one of us. None of us deserves heaven more than the other. We're still all equal. That's true equality. It's only accomplished by the Christian gospel. We all have the same standing with God in Christ. We are all in him. We all have the same inheritance. Heaven, that will be the perfect society in heaven. Not on earth. Can't be achieved on earth. Only for those who trust in the gospel. And so this is uh, what the third horse means and uh, well it gives believers also that great assurance again that we are the only ones who will emerge victorious and because the world is as it is because you cannot depend upon the riches of the world it leads us closer to Christ it weans us away from the world it causes us to work for heavenly riches, not for earthly riches. That's what this does when we acknowledge these things. The Lord Jesus Christ, John chapter 6, verse 27, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. When we look at the world, when we see the injustice, when we see the poverty, when we see the emptiness of the world's riches, well, it leads us closer to Christ. God is fulfilling his purposes in all of these things. But the fourth horseman, let's move on. Verse 7, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. So this is the fourth seal opened, and the fourth horseman. A pale horse, some say a greenish color, much like a corpse. And well, that doesn't surprise us because the name of him that sat on the pale horse was death. And this is what this represents. Death followed by hell or Hades. It should be rendered Hades or perhaps that gives us a better idea. The realm of the dead, a state of disembodied existence. And this is death represented here. All kinds of death. 
Death by warfare, to kill with the sword, is mentioned toward the end of the verse. And uh, not just uh, warfare, that would include all manner of violence, terrorism, aggression, manslaughter, and so on, murder. With hunger, that speaks of famine. Death comes by famine. And with death, why does it mention death on its own there? Well, this speaks of death simply by natural causes, just dying of old age and so on. And with the beasts of the earth, well, that doesn't just mean those who fall foul of wild beasts like lions and tigers and so on, but it would also include uh, the uh, germ warfare, the smallest animals, the smallest creatures that uh, attack us, the viruses. We're very familiar with that. The beasts of the earth that bring us down. So this is death again. This has been ordained by God. And it is very difficult to acknowledge and to accept. But God is sovereign over all of these things, over life, over death. There are no uh, calamitous deaths. Every death is ordained by God. Nobody dies too early. I know it seems that way, particularly in the current climate and recent events have colored our thinking on that. But God is over everything. And even those who have passed away recently, well, it was uh, all according to the preordained decree of God. Not a day uh, shorter than they otherwise would have lived. This was all according to the Lord. God is sovereign. This is the Lord opening the seal of God's book, of God's will. And uh, these things are difficult, but we have to uh, acknowledge them because this is what we see in the word of God. But there is mercy. Notice that uh, this horseman, death, power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth. Only over the fourth part of the earth, not the whole earth. What does that mean? Well, that means really that uh, death will not visit everybody at the same time. Now, of course, you had the flood, the flood of Noah, and everybody died except uh, Noah and uh, those who were in the ark. But for the rest of the time, for the rest of human history, and certainly in the gospel age, it will never be the case that almost everybody in the entire world will die at the same time. There'll be no great calamity on that scale. Yes, death is in the world, but it's only the fourth part. God will have mercy. And again, well, we can look at this coronavirus because it's such a good example. Yes, death has been in the world very much in this coronavirus time. But if you've looked at the official statistics, it's only ever been the death rate about 2%, 3%. Why is that? It's God's mercy. That's because of God, not because of man. Just 2%, just the fourth part. Not everybody in the single, in the whole world is going to die. Only the fourth part. It's the mercy of God. This is how it will be. In the gospel age, until the very end, of course, until the very end of time, 
When the judgment comes, then it will only be God's elect and it will be far more than just the fourth part who will die. All those who have turned away from God, they will be eternally lost. But until that time, there is mercy, only the fourth part. And why is there mercy? Well, again, it's to point people to Christ. God's purposes, the development of the kingdom of God is being fulfilled through all of this. Death, well, of course it points people to Christ. The fact that we are mortal, the fact that we see others die around us, it leads us to think about mortality, about eternity. Where do we go when we die? Where will I go when I die? That leads so many people to Christ, to the kingdom. That very thought, I saw my friend pass away. I saw my brother pass away or my sister. And it made me think of the Lord. It made me think about my own soul. So can't you see this is all leading to the development, the fulfilling of the kingdom of God. Leads us to Christ, the only one in whom we have everlasting life. So there's mercy in all of these things. And well, just to conclude, I'll finish on this. It may have seemed bleak looking at these uh, things this evening, but remember the gospel came first. The gospel is the light that has entered into this world. The white horse, he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And really the other three horsemen, the other three horsemen have been sent so that nothing will ever supersede the gospel. So that nothing can ever replace the gospel. There will be no peace in the world because there is war. Man cannot say, well, uh, we can uh, do better than God. We can have peace on earth. He can't because there is war. And no man can say, well, we can do better than God because we have a perfect society. We have societies on earth that are absolutely perfect. There's no injustice. He can't say that. Because there's always poverty. There's always injustice. And of course man cannot say, can never say, we have found a way to defeat death. We found a way to everlasting life. He can't say that. Because death is in the world. And so these three have been given so that the gospel may have the foremost place. So that Men and women and youngsters will look to the gospel. There's nothing else in this world. Everything else is lost. We must look to the Lord. We must trust in him. We must come to Christ in repentance and faith. So all of this, what a glorious plan this is. This is the mind of God. This is the wisdom of God. This is how God works. His ways are not our ways. And we will see it increasingly as we go through this second cycle. But those are the four horsemen. And I hope we've taken away precious things from that.